Well, I think you could look at this like a tsunami that's hit uh, the, the virus itself and the social distancing. And then what are the consequences in terms of the wreckage when you look at it? <clears throat> and I think you have to think of that as incomes and balance sheets, you know? Um, so it was a tremendous income hit. And then the balance sheets um, losses and what and who has what savings and so on. And then how is that dealt with? And in order to understand that, you have to realize that there are these holes, these holes in income and the holes in the balance sheets. And then you have to realize that there is the production of money and credit. And who produces that money and credit? Okay, the money and credit comes in different flavors. There is US dollar money and credit. There is Euro, Euro dollar money and credit. And so when you look at the world and you're seeing it, you're seeing a situation that is the same as existed really in the 1930 to 45 period in that now we're seeing the production of a lot of debt, a lot of borrowing by the government, we're seeing zero interest rates and not the traditional kind of money, monetary policy, but the producing of a lot of money and credit. So the Federal Reserve is buying the Treasury's debt and the Treasury is getting that money to more, mostly Americans in some imperfect but remarkably large way. And the Europeans are doing the same in their way. That bank is a smaller bank because the world lives with about 70% dollars and only a small percent euro, and they will produce theirs for theirs. And there aren't many banks around the world. And so the rest of the world is going to have gaps, holes that won't be filled. So if you think about that and you say, um, American printing of money and the borrowing will leave us with a lot of debt and monetization. That's something interesting to talk about. And we need to talk about that. Who will pay these bills and how will that be shared will be something we need to talk about. But you will know that you will get that money and that it, the Europeans will get their versions of that money. But we are in a new world and that world is most similar to the 1930 to 45 world. And a lot of the world will not get that money and credit. So there'll be a big differentiation as to which entities benefit and which entities don't. And there'll be a big co co collaboration as to how we will deal with that bill and who will end up with what. A big question of wealth distribution and all of that. So that's, an, that's the big thing that's going to be happening. How confident are you that some of that collaboration can happen right now? We're now at one of those defining moments that I've seen repeatedly. The 1930 30 to 45 period, if you go back in history, there's nothing new to this. And it's a defining moment in terms of how people are with each other. So when you look at it, will people come together or to, when it comes down to it, really, will there be a um, taking care of oneself? And what is that defined? And how will that go? That'll be, I think, a defining moment. So I look at these histories. If I can take a minute, I'd like to just paint a template for you that takes us 
you know, over the last thousand years, the things that have happened over and over again, there is one pattern that I'd like to convey. May I take a moment and do that? Absolutely. There are four things that are the driving forces of our economy and our lifestyle and wealth. And the first and most powerful is, is, is productivity, which comes from people learning and inventing and doing things well, just as Marco described. Okay? And it grows slowly. You know, one or two or three percent a year, it grows slowly. And it's not volatile because knowledge isn't volatile. But it grows, and that raises our living standards over a period of time. Then there's the short-term debt cycle. The short-term debt cycle is, you know, recessions and expansions and booms and recessions that, that they last about eight, 10 years. And then there's a long-term debt cycle. And that long-term debt cycle, which goes on about once every 50 to 75 years, is when you begin a new type of money and a new type of credit. That began in 1945, the new world order at the end of World War II, and with the Bretton Woods monetary system, created a new monetary system in 1945, a new money. So they wiped out pretty much the old money, or they largely disposed of it, and they began anew, and that's the new world order, which was the American world order, and we have seen it, and still 70% of the money and credit that exists in the economy is running by dollars, and what you have traditionally is the breakdown. And then the fourth influence is politics. And politics is largely how we deal with each other. Can, and, and there's internal politics and there's external politics. The internal politics is how do you deal with uh, the wealth gap? How do you deal with the values gap? Do you have a common mission? Do we have an American dream that we can agree on and that we're pursuing that together? Or do you fight over wealth and, and so on? And so when you look at history, that's what revolutions are in their various ways. And there's always a revolution in one of these. Sometimes those are peaceful revolutions and so sometimes they're disruptive. In, like in, and, but it's a wealth shift in, uh, that needs to take place. So in 19, what, the Roosevelt shifted policies and changed taxes and so on in that way. And then in other countries, there was the turning over democracy. Um, Hitler came to power because of that gap. So how people deal with each other internally. There's also external politics. So that politics means between countries. And you have a situation when there's a rising power challenging existing power. There is competition and there is a risk of war. And so how they deal with each other so that they're, whether there's a greater good or whether they are um, fighting with each other is the defining moment. There are always stress tests, these big stress tests that come along once about once every 75 years and, and when they happen. And this is a stress test. And I think that what you're going to see is uh, as how we deal with each other. There's enough wealth to go around. But what do you do when you're outside the ring of support? Uh, let's say, of the, of the U.S. dollar. And what, what is that going to be like for those entities? Or if you're within the ring of support, how will that bill be divided? And how will we be with each other? I think we're going to have to reconsider who has what 
What, what is it about education and so on? So that's what we're in, I think. And I want to um, get to, because you've written extensively about how capitalism needs to change and some of the things that um, we should be thinking about and doing, and I want to definitely get to that a little bit later on. Um, but I am curious right now, I mean, just from a practical level, do you think that we're headed into a global depression? Yes, but I want to be careful about what I use the word, you know, like to be right, technical. Absolutely. The word. The, um, the word is an evocative word, sure. and it can be scary, and so on. So what do you mean by a depression? Okay, something like happened in the 1930s. So just to repeat, 1929 to 1932, there was a fall in the economy, and a very double-digit unemployment rates, and a magnitude of fall in the economy, like about 10%. Do I think we're in that? Yes. How was that dealt with? 1933, um, what they did is they printed a lot of money. Then, and the government came out with the same type of programs that we're having now. Yes, okay, same thing. Zero, interest rates hit zero, same thing. Okay, same dynamics. And then there is a, a, they, they, that money causes an expansion from that point. How long does it take for the stock market to uh, exceed its highs? Or how long does it take for the economy to exceed its former highs? A long time. Okay, do I think that's what we're in? Yes, that's what we're in. We've seen that happen repeatedly in history. You, so many, many times, it's just the most recent one. And there's a structure to that. So yes, this is not a recession. This is a breakdown, a, 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 an operation that I'm just describing in terms of how it's dealt with the production of money and credit and all of that, that's what we're in. And so you've talked about there's sort of four levers um, to recovery after a depression, cutting spending, also known as austerity, debt restructuring or forgiveness, redistribution of wealth through taxes potentially, and printing of money, some of these things you've mentioned. Um, will those things get us out of this situation since as you, you feel it's happened before, um, but how would you think about balancing these tools right now? Uh, yeah, those are, those, are, those are the tools through since eternity, basically, since recorded history. Those are the ones that operated. And um, I think what you're going to see is um, a combination you're seeing of uh, printing money and um, redistribution. And, and I think it'll last. These things happen pretty quickly. Um, there, they last maybe a couple of three years in terms of that process. And then you have a rebuilding and they're dealt with, um, with creativity, the sort of cr the greatest force through time is inventiveness, human inventiveness, adaptability. So you're going to see these restructurings happen. And you're going to see the kind of inventiveness that you just saw from Marco, okay? And it's the power of that adaptation that is the greatest power. I did a, a study, which is on LinkedIn, if anyone wants to see it. And it takes, um, it goes back 500 years. And it shows um, um, real GDP. Uh, in other words, the economic activity going back there. And, and there's a line. And you don't see these depressions, as we're calling them, 
even on that line. They barely wiggles. When you go into it and you look at the that piece, that's what it looks like. GDP falls 10%, unemployment goes up, it, and it passes. And because the greatest force is the force of adaptation and inventiveness if we can operate well together. So that's what I think it's going to look like over this period of time. It'll pass. It, the world will be very different. There'll be a new world order. But it will pass and we'll be inventive because what we're dealing with now is just money and credit. Money and credit is just digital. I mean, there's no, there is real good services. You know, those are real. But everything else is just accounting. And so when you change the digits and you work those things out and you work yourself through, that takes, you know, a couple of years at most kind of. And then you come back into a restructured environment. And it, it could be said that it is really healthy in many ways because it is a stress test. Because if you look at history, people have gotten, sometimes they get weaker or they're not prepared to, in many ways, uh, weaker in terms of maybe they don't build enough savings and they operate that. Or maybe they emphasize luxuries over necessities. It's a reorienting type of experience that in many ways makes us healthy, even appreciating the basics of life. Ray, just popping in here with a, a couple of questions from our online audience. I mean, the main question early on was just how difficult do you think you know the days ahead are for the economy? And you've answered that very vigorously, like using that word depression. Um, is that's a very strong word, and it, it's it's. T tell me if I have this right. It feels to me like what you just said there is stronger than most people in the market seem to believe. The market is behaving as if, you know, the, we've had the bad news and it's sort of kind of wants to come back. And a lot of people seem to think that within, I don't know, a year, we'll be kind of be back where you are. You're saying, no, it's going to take longer. Does that imply that there is basically a sort of some systemic shocks that the market hasn't yet fully seen, perhaps to do with the inability of some players to handle the extreme levels of debt that are piling up right now as people can't work? Um, yeah, I, 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 I can't speak for what everybody's thinking out there. The, you know, the markets are off depending on what market and depending on what country you're in, you know, something in the vicinity of 25 to 45 or 50 percent, depending what currency you're managing in. And so if you're talking about emerging markets, they are worse because they're not going to get as much and so on. I can describe what I see. Okay. We see something like $20 trillion of uh, losses. Okay. We see. So um, there, if, if you work that through and you say you don't have money and you don't have credit, your business can fail. Tom, you know this. We see this all around us. So there can be failures when there can't be payments. And so the question is, who gets what check to make those payments and get past it? But we're going to have a giant restructuring of the of the IOUs, and we're going to work out when hospitals um, are can go broke because this is terribly costly for hospitals, and they will not fully recover their losses hospitals will go broke, even though we know that they need them. So when you go, you have to go entity by entity through this, and then you'll go through the process of who will pay. 
So this is not, you know, some people mistake this as uh, there is a, a, a virus and the virus may come and go. Okay, maybe we never see it again. I don't think that's likely, but I mean, the people who tell me say, but who knows? But if it never came back again, there will be those who are broke and, and, and who will have loss of income. We're going to change how we operate in a, in a way. The, the supply lines are going to change. In other words, self-sufficiency. What is self-sufficiency now going to mean? Do we have enough of this and that? We're going to restructure our economy and restructure the financial system in ways that we mean we are not going to go back to the way it was. So do you see systemic threats to the financial industry as great or greater than happened in 2008? Yeah, this is bigger than what happened in 2008. I'll distinguish it. In, in, in 2008, we had banks. It, it, it's the same thing, meaning you have a certain amount of leverage, things go down, too much leverage means you're broke in accounting terms. So then you look around and you say, who are the systemically important entities that you don't want to go broke? Because do you want to lose those banks at this time? And then you can make up money and make up credit and you can keep them alive in some way. And you did it with banks and through the banks, there were the mortgages and that's what it looked like. This is more complex than that because there are the banks and then there are those, all of those that are beyond banks. All of the little businesses, all of those in all the different places that are beyond it. And it's a bigger crisis and we have a less effective monetary policy because interest rates declines have reached their limit. And just buying financial assets by the central bank and buying the normal financial assets won't work. They have to buy the debt of the government and the government or the many governments have to be effective in getting buying power and production to those who need it around the world. Um, I'm going to ask one last question and then I'll be back at the end of the hour. Maureen, it's be back, back to you. But though, given how bleak that is, people are asking what kinds of industries, organizations, companies have the best prospects of thriving going forward? Well, that's, you see, that's the, that's the beauty of it. it um, there are two types, basically. There are those uh, that are sta stable, meat and potatoes, not leveraged kind of companies. You know, um, the Campbell soup equivalent, you know, like everybody's going to use them all time kind of thing. And then there are the innovators. The innovators, uh, uh, like we're talking about Marco, you had Marco on before. And that new innovation, those who can adapt well and innovate well and don't have uh, balance sheet problems. In other words, they have strong balance sheets, so they're going to be able to play the game without having that. They will be great winners. And so there's always new inventions, new creativity. That is the new adaptation that, that becomes a company and an entrepreneur. And they're going to do great plus the stuff that we're always going to need. Those are the things that are going to do great. Thank you, Ray. Lori. Thank you, Chris. Um, so I guess I'd like to stay uh, with the market for a minute. Um, obviously, it's something that interests so many people. And the state of the market doesn't always correlate with um, what's going on in the economy. Um, 
And the market and its players have changed so much uh, over the past, you know, 70 years or so, 70, 90 years. Um, so many more algorithms and machines and passive event investing. And how do you think that sort of affects how the market is behaving right now, um, how it's going to recover over the next, you know, few years as the economy recovers? Um. The, the basic fundamentals of money, credit, crisis, who has what income, who has what expenses, who has what balance sheet, and how do we deal with money and credit. Those things which people often lose sight of because they happen only once in one's lifetime. This period, you have to go back to the 1930s as the last year period. Those fundamentals of what a bank is and the, and the associated process um, have existed all through time. Then it's, um, then it's like um, technology changes. Technology evolves. And so the capacity to um, take one's thinking and to put them in algorithms. We've been doing this for 25 years. Um, the way we operate is to take... Uh, a principle, how would I deal with that situation, and write it down, put it into an algorithm, and then because the capacity to think has been radically enhanced because the human mind has a capacity problem. It's unique in invest inventing, but it is uh, it can only process so much at so time. So when worked in partnership with the with the computer, which has the capacity to take that thinking and replicate it and do all of that leverage thinking and think in an advanced way. That is the advancement of our time. And so you're seeing that. So when you think algorithmic, it's, you know, you got to break it down as to what it is. Is it sensible cause effect relationships that are being dealt with? It, uh, it all comes back to do you have understanding and are you successfully betting on a cause-effect relationship because that's the only way you're going to make money so but uh, but the computer can do it and process that thing in a much more advanced way so that's what's going on there will be people who will make the mistake of just applying machine learning to the markets and that generally that won't work because of certain things um, I guess I should explain because you asked so um, on um, algorithmic decision-making, there are two ways you can get your algorithm. You can specify the instruction to the computer and have it follow that, and that'll enable, enable your thinking. Or you can have the algorithm come from putting a lot of data into the computer and asking computer, what would you do and what's your algorithm? The key difference between those is, do you have understanding of the cause-effect relationships. You must have understanding of the cause-effect relationships to know what you to believe in because you can't always get that in your sample size. For example, what's happening now, you could not have run your computer and have it in your sample size because you would have to go back to the 1930s to have an analogous period. So what you, it's, it is how you do that, but the capacity to learn, to invent, and to get, you know, that leverage 
in decision making is greater than ever before. And that's the power of our time. Some will do it well, some will do it poorly, but it really comes down to do you have the understanding of those cause-effect relationships so that you know how to place the right bet? But that's that's very different from the passive investment market, which is such a huge part of it now. And that's where most people, you know, the average person has their money. And um, I know that everything's changing day to day, but I also know that everyone's going to have this question on their mind. So I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to ask for specific investment advice. Or one case. Do you have any general thoughts about how people should, you know, approach this time period with that that kind of money? Yeah. First of all, an investor must understand that they probably will not be able to play the game well. They probably will not be able to decide how to move in and out of things. Um, in order to be successful in the markets is more difficult than um, getting a gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, you wouldn't think about competing in the Olympics, but everybody thinks they can compete in the markets. But there's more money competing. It's like a zero-sum game, and there's more money doing it. And the worst thing you could do is be, I think you can time all of these movements. Um, if you could, I guarantee you the game's a tough game to time. We put hundreds of millions of dollars into the game every year, and it's tough. Um, so what the uh, individual investor needs to do is know how to diversify well. So the word that I would know how to diversify well and in a balanced way. The greatest mistake of all investors is to think that what has done well lately is a better investment rather than more expensive. And the greatest and what has done worse lately is the worst investment, get me out of it, at, rather than it's cheap. And unless you know how to deal with the differences of those, which most people don't, they're going to be in trouble. So understand that wealth, total amount of wealth in the world, essentially doesn't change very much, okay? And that one thing goes up, another thing goes down. And to know how to diversify, to diversify it in asset classes, to diversify it in countries, um, to diversify it in currencies, to know how to diversify that well so that you have wealth diversification is important. Do not think that cash is a safe investment. When you, uh, most people think, look, I just want safety and those bonds aren't giving, giving me an interest rate and so on, so where do I get safe? Cash is a seductive investment because it doesn't have as much volatility, but it taxes you and your buying power about 2% a year. And so, uh, and that, so cash is almost always the worst investment. So you have to think about that. You should think a little bit unconventionally. Do you have a little bit of gold? Do you have a little bit of um, asset in case this monetary system breaks down and money's redefined? Do you have a little bit of that? I can't get into all the different ways that one can diversify well. I try to convey those things in my books or my or uh, you know on posts uh, posts on LinkedIn particularly. Um, but I but I would say diversify well, be humble, don't market time, 
and be conscious of the dangers of cash. Right, that's great advice. Um, I want to ask one more sort of big picture question before we start get into how we should fix capitalism. We can uh, talk about that in a minute. Um, tackle that one, but. Uh, I have been reading your series on LinkedIn, The Changing World Order. Um, it's really fascinating. I'm curious what you think about, there's been sort of this retreat from globalization as something we should all get behind. And I'm curious what you think about that in terms of our recovery. This seems like something that is going to require a coordinated effort you know, financially, spiritually, in so many different ways. If we retreat from globalization right now, does that make everything harder going forward? Uh, if we retreat from globalization, which we certainly will do, it will certainly make things very hard. And so we get down to the, the, the comparing idealism with reality. So when you say um, globalization and global it, will that, who will write what checks to people in countries that will be outside of their domain? And, and there are large numbers of those people. You know, my wife and I are trying to help people in Connecticut. And, you know, I can rattle off all that is and what, what a job that is and, and so on. And so, and when you have, um, congresses and presidents and they start to say who will we help and how will that be and what will that mean it gets down to real practical questions and the reality is a lot of those people won't be helped and then we'll, you'll deal with how will they behave for each other are one country's vulnerabilities another country's opportunities in such times um there this is the case because um, you know, uh, Graham Allison uh, remind, uh, wrote a book about the Thucydides trap, and he remind us, over the last 500 years, there have been 16 um, countries in which there's been a rivalry of an empire challenging another. In 12 of those cases, there have been wars, because at the end of the day, there's not even a global legal system. Power is, the, is what is the currency in, uh, of that. So when you get into what, how do you resolve a dispute as to who gets what, that becomes a very complicated question. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a globalist. I mean, meaning I have a dream and a, and a wish that uh, the best of the best can operate together and work together for that common good and so on. But it is, it's dying because we're in an interconnected, fragmented world. The fragmentation of this. Can I depend on somebody else to give me something I need? Or can I depend on them not taking advantage of me? No, you can't make those dependencies anymore. And that exists within countries as well as between countries. Yeah, I mean, it sound, It seems like, you know, you talk about productivity and the importance of productivity for us um, all to have a better life. And it just seems like on a global level, the same should hold true. If we're all focused on being more productive together and in that interconnected way, we'll all do better as opposed to kind of hoarding one one asset or one set of resources. You're, you're certainly true. That has always been true, but never more true than today. And at the same time, read history. 
and understand the mechanics and the, and the issues and the challenges of this. This separation began before we had this isolation of the United States relative to the rest of the world. This deglobalization began before we had this that fosters more of it, right? And it happened for reasons, okay? So don't overlook those reasons and don't overlook the reading of history just because we wish it can happen. If you want to wish it happens, it's all, everything is all dependent on the behavior of those who have their, lev on their hands on the levers of power. I would tell you, like, for example, right now, um, uh, I, I've been going to China for a long time, and uh, the, the Chinese in many ways are helping in many ways things that are needed in this crisis and, and, and all that. To even say that is a politically challenging thing, okay? Because we're in a world that is so fragmented that even to publicly say thank you, it, and thank you to many people and many companies, it's almost dangerous to say thank you to those who are helping because we're, we're now in an environment in which there are uh, it's uh, enemies and, and who is evil? And do you fall into that category? And so the history of these is there's demonizations of different people. Okay, now you must see it around you. It exists. And so how we come out of this will be how we depend, behave with each other. Yeah. That's such an important point. And I think all of us here um, would say thank you to, you know, the different people helping out in this situation. We, we do need each other. Um, I do want to get to this um, issue of capitalism, because uh, when we, we talked a few days ago, you mentioned, and, and earlier in this conversation as well, how, you know, this period of time we can emerge stronger and better than before. And about a year ago, you wrote a piece um, about how capitalism needs to be reformed, um, focused a lot on the wealth gap, the growing wealth gap, and the problems that that's causing. So what's our opportunity here? What changes can we make? Well, you know, what I was, what I was seeing was, um, do we want the outcomes that we are getting, that the system is producing? Do we have, what is our American dream? What is that? We're not even almost talking about that. Um, when I was growing up, so it, again, I, I grew up, I, I was born 1949, right after the New World Order was created. New World Order was created in 1945. And I'm 45. And that was when there was a breakdown of the system. And then we had a New World Order. We didn't have as much debt. We came back for the war. And there was an environment of equal opportunity. Um, and, and that notion of equal opportunity. And there was an American dream. And there was a harmony and a um, going through it together. And by the way, if you, that's not a one-off. If you read histories, you see these pe periods of collapse and clash and fighting, followed by these periods of, you know, you, re you read it, construct the balance sheets, you, you change the system, and then you begin a new system, and you come back and you work together. And then I'm seeing around me um, the children in school and education systems in poor neighborhoods 
are uh, sharing, uh, they don't have adequate resources. There's no, there's no excuse. And so the idea that the profit system can accomplish everything is, um, is not right. Um, because resource allocation goes to those who have the resource. And so throughout all history, you go back hundreds of years, you see that any system works for those who tend to control the system. So let's say we have a capitalist system and, uh, and we have entrepreneurs and you acquire money and, and, and all that, and then working with uh, those in government and they have a symbiotic relationship um, and it works well for them. So it's self-perpetuating because the education of those who um, are those is better than the education of those who aren't those. So for example, um, in our system, the uh, those in the top 40% on average spend five times as much money on, on their children's education than those who are in the bottom 60%. And so it's become self-perpetuated. And so when I look at that, I'm saying, I'm a capitalist, please understand, I'm a capitalist, I believe in the system. I believe you can increase the size of the pie and you could divide it well. And if we talk about how to do that effectively, we need to do it. But there becomes a time that there needs reforms and those reforms have to create productivity. It doesn't mean just give money away. It means how do you make those people productive so that they are also psychologically productive as well as physically productive in producing output. You need to do that system. And so for reasons I wrote on that page, that, uh, that post, it's on LinkedIn if people want it, that you need to restructure it. Now we are restructuring it, okay? And it, it's the un inevitable consequence of what we're doing here. We will come out of that. There's been a tremendous transfer of wealth, whether people realize it or not, through the production of all of that borrowed money and all of that producing of money, that is a big force. We will come out of here. And the thing we will talk about over the next couple of years, and probably sooner rather than later, is how we do that restructuring. And my worry now is the same as my worry then, whether that will be done in a civil, bipartisan way that will both increase the size of the pie and divide it well rather than damage the economy because you lose productivity. There are certain things that are great investments. Education is a great investment. The more people you have that are well-educated and you have equal education, the more people you're going to have who are, have a, a chance to compete with each other and raise that over a period of time. It's a hell of an uh, uh, investment. It will produce more productivity than it ever will cost if it's done well. But what happens is states and localities think of it as a budget item. So they look at expenses and they penny pinch on the education. Because if you're in a rich town, you may, your kids will get a good education. And if you're not, and a large percentage of the population is losing that. So that has to be engineered well so that they're productive as well as divide the pie well. And everybody believes that the system is fair. If we, we can get there, uh, am I optimistic that we will get there? You know, I don't know. I would say I'm 60-40 pessimistic that we'll be good enough with each other to do that. But there's that possibility. This is our test. This is our stress test. Ray, it's, um, there's so much interest in this question of 
how we emerge from this, whether it's genuinely possible to rebuild the economy in a way that's fairer. I just want to read one last question. This one's from my Twitter feed. Um, do you think that the current crisis is showing that low paid and or unskilled workers are what holds countries together even more so than banks and hedge funds? And if so, as part of the rebuilding, can, can we build an economy that raises their interests higher? Those, the heroes are those kind of people. Uh, okay, really. I mean, but it takes, it takes, it takes everyone. Okay. It takes the efficient allocation of resources, uh, for, uh, as you probably have seen behind the scenes, we see those who control uh, a lot of resources being able to make contribute. We, we're giving 60,000 computers to, uh, poor students so that they can learn. You know, the difference between a rich and a poor student, uh, is having a computer and have the ability to learn. And, and I want to, thank those who would be embarrassed and almost afraid to hear it of how they contributed to that process. And at the same time, those other pe people who are every day serving in so many ways. So it's good character. And, and it, and is that like, you know, when they, people came back from war and they were the greatest generation, it's that type of character. And that, that brings our country together, but it each has to recognize their roles in doing that. So there's a CEO, and then there's somebody who's really a great hero on the front lines, and they better damn world work well together. So yeah, yeah. And, and, and then they have to have usefulness, and we've got to appreciate them. We have to establish just the reality, I think, that there is a level of basics basic education, basic health care, basic basics that you cannot fall below. Okay. Otherwise, when you go below that level, there is no opportunity. And it actually the costliness of it in the form of crimes and incarceration, like, like to bring it personal, we're, our mission is to help high school kids who are drop out of high school and have jobs to get them in the high school and through that in, in jobs. And we believe that we can do that and save a lot of money because the average um, rate of uh, cost of incarceration, depending, it goes from about $40,000 a year up to $120,000 a year, depending on the form. And if you get them in and move them into a job, you're going to save a lot of money and we could do that cost effectively. So to, but, Philanthropists can't do this alone. The, um, the amount of money is enormous. So if our country did those kinds of things, I think, I think it'd be great. Wow, thank you for that, Ray. Corey, what do you think? You got, got any other questions there before we wrap up? Um, no, I think, I think we're good. I mean, I think we're gonna get through it, I guess is what we're saying, but we also have an opportunity here to make some changes and do better and emerge stronger and to, as you said, take a look at things and the structures that we have in place and, and see where we can improve, but it's going to take a collective action and cooperation. 